Hops and Box Office Flops is brought to you by Large March Trucking and Freight. If you're ever traveling down Route 66 and you need to stop for gas, be sure to tell them Large March sent you. You'll get a discount. Now for our show. Hello and welcome to Hops and Box Office Flops. I am your one of your hosts, Tom Kelly. Uh, normally I'll be joined by a co-host, uh, but he's on the mend after surgery, so we're just kind of kicking things off, testing the waters, introducing the concept of the show and what it is, and as a special treat, we're also going to discuss one of the all-time great box office flops, The Island of Dr. Moreau. And in exploring that movie, we're also going to go over the documentary that was made about sort of the director's nightmarish uh, journey to get the movie made, in getting fired from the movie, and in, yes, indeed, sneaking back onto the movie as an extra. So, I hope you enjoy. Uh, So, the general idea behind Hops and Box Office Flops is that I, myself, and a fellow geek friend of mine are going to break down uh, films that, A, either underperformed at the box office, B, feature a big star in a movie sort of well beneath their reputation, or C, uh, just got horrendous reviews that either one of us love. Now, The Island of Dr. Moreau, which we'll discuss in a moment, sort of fits into all three of those categories. So it's, sort of, it's like a gold star standard of the concept of this show. Now, in the future, when I have my co-host, uh, we'll be doing different kinds of segments um, where we kind of ping-pong off each other. Uh, today, we'll just kind of break it down to the general uh, plot analysis and the overall reaction to the film, and then we'll get into the documentary. So... Um, won't be as crowded in this episode as normal, but I think it'll be a lot of fun because this movie is uh, pretty insane. It's definitely dated, and the story behind it is even crazier than anything you could probably imagine. So, On the sixth day, God created man. On the seventh day, he rested. On the eighth day, in the year 1996, in a remote laboratory, an exiled scientist created something impossible, unmistakably human, undeniably animal, on the island of Dr. So that, my friends, is the trailer for Dr. Moreau that came out in 1996, the year the movie was released. Um, Sounds like day six and seven were pretty chill. And then day eight, you know, like shit just totally hit the fan. They're like, you know, what we've done so far is pretty cool, but we don't have nearly enough leopard and bison people. And that is our plot. You know, that's the conceit here. It's a guy tinkering with science he can't possibly understand. You know, what are the ramifications going to be of the testing that he is doing? He can't really know. And as we've seen in movies with very similar themes, Jurassic Park or novels with very similar themes, Frankenstein, things are going to go wrong at some point. And 
we're sort of viewing that through the lens of Edward Douglas, the everyman, the guy who's stranded there. And he's played by David Thewlis. He's actually the second actor to take the role because as we get into sort of the disaster behind this film, uh, the first guy leaves. Dr. Moreau is played by Marlon Brando. And suffice to say, it's probably not his finest performance, although he is channeling Jarrell from Superman the movie to a certain degree. Uh, this is not one for the record books, and we'll get into that. Before we do, let's just talk about the concept, right? This guy's found adrift. He's brought to this incredibly strange place, populated by ungodly creatures and just bizarre people like Montgomery, who's Dr. Moreau's assistant, played by Val Kilmer at his up-and-down zaniest. You have the aforementioned Marlon Brando, uh, who, uh, when we talk more about the documentary, is just so off the wall it's sort of hard to believe that this was one of the great actors living actors at the time you know to ever grace the screen because he is pomp and circumstance he's all gussied up in white paint he's flanked by a dwarf the entire movie who's essentially just a miniature version of himself he has a daughter who's gradually turning into a cat then of course you've got the creatures who are dr moreau's uh creations and they are a bit uncouth. You've got Sow Lady, who's a who's a half pig, half woman, who's more or less naked the entire movie. There's Hyena Swine, who I guess is half pig, half hyena, who serves as sort of like the, uh, if you've seen the more recent Planet of the Apes, I guess he's sort of like the Koba of this place because he revolts. Uh, you've got Ron Perlman as a blind billy goat who's like a preacher. Uh... <laughs> And, you know, the concept is actually really inventive. It's, it's, a, it's a tremendous idea. It's really neat. It's, you know, you're exploring what are the limits, right? You know, like, how far is it okay for someone to go in the name of science, right? And what he's doing is, it's very strange, obviously. Um, but the, the movie itself, even though the setup seems pretty straightforward, doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Um, so from this general introduction we, we discovered to find the animals aren't very happy why? because the father, Marlon Brando who's created all these animals doesn't treat them very well they're prisoners on this island he, uh, he hurts them you know, he punishes them when they misbehave he's sort of a god so in becoming the creator like he's let it all go to his head he sees himself probably in a greater light than he probably should uh, and then of course you got Val Kilmer who's this assistant who you know a little bit about but not really turns out he gives all the animals LSD and other drugs and they go on these crazy parties which actually goes uh, kind of rolls into things that actually happen in real life and he's drugged up through half the movie and you don't really know why he's on drugs but I guess it served the plot because the animals have to get a gun and he's passed out in a chair and that's the easy way to do it and it's worth seeing simply to see Marlon Brando all out, all done up in white makeup for an inexplicable reason, playing piano with his dwarf friend who's playing a miniature piano on top of his piano, and for Val Kilmer losing his mind at one point during the movie and essentially just doing a Marlon Brando impression. That's really all you need to know about the movie itself, because if I... 
tried to explain to you why things happened the way they did or what was really going on or why Edward Douglas was falling in love with the Catwoman, it'd be impossible. It's, I don't think they knew it while they were filming it. They rewrote this movie multiple times over. One of the great stories which they tell in the documentary is that Marlon Brando, who was particularly difficult to work with, pulled the assistant director aside and said, let's shut down the production, let's rewrite the movie, and at the very end I'll take off my hat and it turns out I'm a dolphin. That's the type of situation that was going on on this island. So, I will give the movie extra points for a couple of things. Tamara Morrison is uh, one of the animal dog hybrids, uh, who is one of Dr. Moreau's sons, so kudos. Aquaman's dad makes an appearance. And you've got the actor who, uh, he was the consultant on the guerrilla movements in Gorillas in the Mist, but he was also in the ape suit in Congo which if you've ever seen Congo, is a book by Michael Crichton, who also wrote Jurassic Park. The movie is pretty terrible and probably uh, fit to be on an episode of the show. But he is a uh, an ape in this movie as well, named as As Asimov. And he carries around a baseball bat. Nobody knows why, but he does. And <laughs> it's just one of those things. And it's pretty fantastic. So... Bonus points for having some bit play, uh, for having some uh, interesting bit players from movies you've probably seen. You have no clue who that person is, and for having Aquaman's dad run around like a madman, half dog, half human, through the island. Now, let's get to the documentary itself because the stories behind the movie are actually a lot more entertaining than the movie itself. The documentary, uh, which is available for free on. Amazon Prime if you have it, uh, and the movie if you want to watch it, which I would recommend doing after the documentary so you kind of get a feel for all the bat shit nut stuff that happened, um, is available for free on Vudu with ads, or you can rent it for like two ninety nine from a couple of different places. YouTube has it. Uh, I forget where else. Um, it's not on Amazon right now. I don't know why. I don't know what they're doing with their lives that they can't get the real island of Dr. Moreau available for people. So the documentary is called Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. Now, If you've never heard of Richard Stanley, it's probably for good reason because he was sort of a niche director in the late 80s, early 90s. He did a couple of sort of genre horror films like B-movie horror films. Uh, One was called Hardware. The other was called Dust Devil. And if you see these movies uh, and you're into that sort of sort of filmmaking, grindhouse type stuff, you'd, you know, you'd probably enjoy it, but you'd also wonder, like, why would a major studio hand this guy a multi-million dollar picture? Now, one of the reasons is Richard Stanley, as the documentary notes, is really passionate about the project. He received writing credit on the movie, even though they rewrote a lot of it. He was pushing this thing for years, and he finally got the deal done. Um, so, you know, it was it was his baby. And I think they thought, given his history, he could pull it off. Now, as the movie gets into development, and if you know anything about sort of movies in development, when something is in production, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? Like getting a green light, nothing matters until the movie starts shooting. So 
they fly this guy out to, to L.A. He's sort of a nervous type. He, he doesn't like going to meetings. The studio's already weary of him. Uh, and he catches wind that they're thinking about, once they get uh, Marlon Brando to agree to picture, they're thinking about replacing him with Roman Polanski, who obviously now is quite infamous, but back then it was still probably closer to the height of his powers and not a uh, deserved felon. So Stanley panics, and this is a true story because he tells it himself in the documentary. He goes to a warlock friend of his and says, I need you to perform some blood magic to bring me good luck for when I meet with Brando so they don't take the movie away from me. So according to his story, as he was in L.A. going to meet with Marlon Brando, his warlock friend was performing a blood ritual to cast aside any negative energy that may be surrounding the picture and to ensure that Richard Stanley himself got the movie. Okay. Meets with Marlon Brando. Everything goes well. The blood magic must have been a total success. There you go. He's on the picture. Now, they cast Bruce Willis to play Edward Douglas. They cast James Woods to play uh, Montgomery. Bruce Willis has to back out. It's not going to work. Okay. Why don't we... Who are we going to get? Well, Val Kilmer's just shot Batman Returns. Batman Returns is the biggest hit of the year. The studio wants Val Kilmer. If we can't have one star, we want another star. So Stanley says he goes to Tokyo to meet with Mr. Kilmer. He's touring for Batman Forever. So, pardon my... I, I think I said Batman Returns, but it's Batman Forever. It says Val Kilmer's sort of not the greatest guy in the world. He's not treating people in Tokyo very nicely, but, you know... It's been a long tour, whatever. They hire Val Kilmer. All is well and dandy. They're getting, you know, they're preparing to go shoot this thing. They've scouted this location, which is in like the northeast corner of Australia in a rainforest in Cairns, which is 250 kilometers from Sydney. It's like a two-hour drive each way from the town that most people are staying at to the set. They got to cut down this rainforest. So pre-production in itself is like an, just a total nightmare. Now, they get there. Again, the studio's getting a little concerned about the director. He's not going to meetings. He is very standoffish. He likes to stay in the home he's renting. They're just a little worried about him. Well, that all kicks up a notch as things start to go awry. Uh, Marlon Brando's daughter commits suicide. So now he's a toss-up. Is he going to come? Is he not going to come? Obviously, that's a horrible tragedy. Affected him very greatly. That's bad. Val Kilmer decides, well, I don't want to shoot as many days as you're asking. I want to shoot 40% less days. Okay, well, how's that going to work, right? Like, you're the star of the movie. They decide to make Val Kilmer James Woods' character. James Woods is off the picture. Now we got to replace... Edward Douglas. So they get Rob Morrow. He's hot. He's coming off of Northern Exposure. Um, you know, he's, he's, he's an it guy. They get Rob Morrow. So they show up. This is months of pre-production. And makeup and all that stuff. And apparently the director was more concerned about that stuff. And understandably, he was really psyched about the design of the film and what he was going for. And if you look at the storyboards, a lot of it's really cool. And as he describes the movie, he's obviously very passionate about it. Uh, 
Unfortunately, it didn't seem like he was very organized in terms of the filmmaking process. And of course, without um, Marlon Brando, you're limited in what you can shoot. So in, they decide they're going to shoot these boat scenes. As, as sort of preface at the very beginning of the podcast, this guy's adrift in the sea. So they're going to shoot these boat scenes. Well, uh, this remote location in Australia turns out it is the greatest rainfall in Australia greatest rainfall area in australia so they get sort of a monsoon rain just keeps coming keeps coming keeps coming floods the set they can't shoot so (laughs) rob morrow's like what the heck is going on man this isn't this is just crazy what am i doing here they finally get a day to shoot he's doing the scenes he's like i'm not getting any direction after this he's had enough he calls up bob shea who's the president of new line and if you've ever seen uh, Freddy vs. Jason, uh, he's the principal. And he's he's in some other Nightmare on Elm Street stuff. Because, as you may not know, New Line was the house that Freddy built. Like, Freddy was their first big franchise. Really saved the studio. Uh, it was tens of millions of dollars. It was always a hit. It was very cheap, cost-effective movie making. Uh, they sort of talk about that in the documentary, how this was sort of a departure. Uh, they'd been on a sort of veering away from what built the studio they were making like higher profile movies with bigger name actors and less of the sort of schlocky fun horror stuff that that really got them to where they were and this was in that vein as well because it was a prestige picture i mean when you get marlon brando you get val kilmer who's one of the biggest stars in the world you're thinking it's going to be great now regardless he calls bob shea he wants off Bob Shea says, okay, which is kind of hard to believe because generally that doesn't happen. Um, and so now you've got to replace the star of the movie. The movie's already shooting. And I don't remember exactly sort of how this all shapes out, but it's not very long after that they fire Richard Stanley. Now, instead of doing it uh, in a really professional way, I guess they did it by fax. They buy him a ticket back to LA they have two uh, the guys who work on the set as um, their extras and they're also sort of set assistants they drive him to the airport he never gets on the plane now we don't know where Richard Stanley is he's gone now they were worried that he would try and mess with the production of the movie he'd been apparently casually said on the way out like we might as well just burn this whole place down they were worried about retribution. They wanted to make sure he wasn't going to mess with the production of the film. Not that he could, as we come to find out. So he's he's in the wind. He's on the lamb. Nobody knows where he is. He's gone. Onward and upward. They've got to hire a new director. They bring in John Frankenheimer, who's an old school guy. He directed The French Connection, too, amongst other things. But he'd been in the industry a long time. He's sort of a no-nonsense guy thing is he didn't really care for the material he was more of a straight type director he liked to make movies that were probably more steeped in reality and he wasn't excited about the picture he just wanted to get in there and get it done he wasn't i guess particularly nice to people Um, so bringing in someone who's a little more seasoned really didn't benefit the picture at all so just to give you sort of a 
broad overview of how disastrous this all was. Generally, the, the movie was set to shoot for six weeks. It shot for six months. Six months of shooting time with hundreds of extras who are in heavy prosthetics in Australia, where it's generally extremely hot or muggy. These people had to be just miserable. And then you couple it with the fact that on the set you have just an insane battle between egos being Val Kilmer and Marlon Brando. They didn't get along. They rarely talked to each other. And it was always a game of basically who could be the biggest pain in the butt on the set of this movie. Famously, before Richard Stanley got fired, uh, he was giving Val Kilmer some direction. And he was in front of the camera. And Val Kilmer says something to him like, I'm an actor. I stand in front of the camera. You're the director. You stand behind the camera. So go over there. Sort of emasculated him in front of the whole kid the whole crew and that was sort of the beginning of the end right he he didn't want to work with this guy he didn't want to be there at all I guess later he claimed that he was going through uh divorce or his wife had said she was she had left him and he was sort of upset about the whole thing but when you hear about his behavior it really doesn't justify it like some of the Val Kilmer's greatest hits on this movie uh singeing the hairs of a production assistant with a cigarette Refusing to come out of his trailer until Marlon Brando came out of his trailer. No, Marlon Brando wouldn't come out of his trailer until Val Kilmer came out of his. So here you are in the sweltering heat, all these extras in this idiotic prosthetic makeup, sitting outside for hours on end. They're not going to shoot that day because these two guys are in an ego contest about who the bigger star is. Uh, which is pretty wild when you think about it. Now, Brando himself was no cup of tea. He was probably just as difficult, if not more so, than Kilmer. Um, he showed up a week late. He often showed up late to set. He would sit in his trailer. He didn't want to come outside. It was too hot for him. Um, there was an actor in the movie... Who, was, who played one of his dogmen's sons, who was a German guy. <laughs> he talks to this guy. He's like, oh, you must speak German. You're German. He mutters to him. <laughs> guy says, I don't, you know, I didn't, I didn't get that. He's like, well, I thought you spoke German. <laughs> no, I, I didn't catch that. Did you say cat on a hot roof? No, I thought you spoke German. Now, that's not the funny part of the whole thing. He then looks over at uh, Nelson De La Rosa, who was the dwarf, he was actually the shortest man in the world, and he's like, oh, you must speak Spanish, and he does this gibberish, and the guy says, oh, yeah, of course, and he goes, I like that guy, and he tells the director, I want him in every scene, so he sort of takes this guy's, all this guy's scenes he's supposed to have with him, gives them to this dwarf guy who doesn't really speak any English, and that's how we get all those scenes with him. Now, of course, as we said before, he shows up on set in all white makeup, wearing sort of like a, almost like a, a sumo diaper and a robe, and a ridiculous hat. And he's like, I just think like, you know, my character, this is what he would do. He, he's sensitive to the sun. It's not the script. It's just sort of his interpretation. And then he's like, you know, I think I should have uh, 
peacock feathers on my chair. So then some production assistant runs to some farm down the road and rips some feathers off a peacock so Marlon Brando's chair can have feathers on them. Uh, at one scene in the movie, he's wearing an ice bucket on his head. He's like, well, you know, it's hot here, and I think he'd wear an ice bucket on his head. You know, for no good reason. It's sort of that type of stuff that's going on throughout the the production of this movie. And uh, Frankenheimer, who we mentioned before, who takes over the movie, like a lot of people, came on this movie, one, because he was going to get paid handsomely for it, and two, he really wanted to work with Marlon Brando. And... Val Kilmer wanted to work with Marlon Brando and Rob Morrow wanted to work with Marlon Brando and they all have like sort of like the worst experience of their professional lives working with this guy because he's so off the rails. Now one thing I will say is when you watch the movie, now if you, as I said, watch the documentary first, see the behind the scenes stuff that's going on here and then watch the movie to sort of appreciate how nuts it must have been for all these people but when you watch it Marlon Brando's sort of right about all this stuff because this movie inherently is so bonkers anyways why wouldn't he have this dwarf as his, by his side the entire movie the guy's nuts he knows the guy's nuts like you read the script clearly the doctor himself is nuts like it, it, it works in a way and it's probably one of the only things that, that does work about the movie is that he goes all out with it he embraces the zaniness of it. It just says, screw it. Yeah, he's going to sit next to me. Or he's going to play a small piano on top of my piano. Or I'm going to do this ridiculous voice. It just, he, he's really the only element that sort of works. He and, of course, when Val Kilmer turns into him. Which is just a sight to behold. Now, the last real element of this movie that or this documentary that we have to discuss, is Richard Stanley himself, who disappeared. He's off the radar. Nobody knows where he is. He never made it back to L.A. They're freaking out. And the, the couple of locals who were serving as production assistants and extras come to find out there's a guy living in this, in this farming village off the river, and he's not a local. And they just, in hearing the description of him, they're like, well, you know, that sounds like Richard. So they go to the village. Turns out it's Richard. Richard, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be back in L.A. I never went. He, and, you know, it's understandable. The guy sort of loses his marbles when he gets fired from his dream project. And he just wasn't ready to face reality. But the beauty of all this is, he then decides, like, you know what? Let's go back. Let's go back to the set. And he takes one of the guy's costumes, who's, I, I think he's a dog man in the movie, and he becomes an extra in this movie. And for the remainder of the shoot, he's in the background scenes. Whenever there's a high uh, population of mutants on screen, you can. They point him out a couple of times in the documentary, but just imagine this guy got fired from this film, and here he is lurking like 15 feet behind Val Kilmer as they shoot this movie, and he can probably clearly see that it's just going to be an outright disaster. And to me, that's one of the fun, just one of the most surreal and funny things I've ever heard about a movie. So just before we wrap up, 
I thought it would be funny to just go through the IMDb and look at some of the names of the characters. Uh, we've mentioned Hyena Swine. Aisa, who play, is uh, played by Feruza Balk, is the, the woman who's slowly transitioning into a cat. You've got Azazello, that's Tamara Morrison. Azasamon, who's the gorilla with a baseball bat. Lome, Sarah of the Law, he's the blind billy goat. Emling, he's the German guy. Wagdi, Boar Man, Bison Man, Fox Lady, Sow Lady Number One, Sow Lady Number Two, Kirill, uh, Dog Man, Melting Bulldog, that's Richard Stanley's character. Uh, and then, so, really just some top of the line stuff in there. Uh, now, I'm going to rate this on a scale of. 1 to 8, because we're, this is the Sow Lady scale. I'm going to rate the movie itself, and I'm going to rate the documentary on the Sow Lady scale. And since the Sow Lady had about 8 nipples, it's a scale of 1 to 8, so it's almost a perfect scale, you know. Uh, the movie itself, will give it 4 out of 8 Sow Lady nipples. So, see it, uh, sort of believe your eyes when... What is actually happening on screen, it's true. It's all real. It's not You're not having a hallucination of sorts. The documentary will give 7 out of 8 Sal Lady Nibbles because truly the truth is so much stranger than the fiction. What happened with this movie is unlike anything I've ever heard before. Uh, and yet somehow, with all the behind-the-scenes drama, with the crazy parties the extras were having, with the six months of shooting time, with the director being sacked a week into shooting, it still had a mo or more coherent and put-together ending than Justice League. So chew on that for a while. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks uh, with my co-host, and that'll make the show a lot more well-rounded. It won't just be me rambling about some insane film I watched the other night, but I just had to talk about this because I've been putting off seeing this movie for so long. And I just finally had to do it. I, I watched the documentary and the film back-to-back in -back one night. I enjoyed basically every second of both. Um, it really is. I mean, it's, it is something encapsulated in the history of cinema. This is one of the all-time disasters. You don't really hear about shoots like this very often. And the documentary itself is one of the, the better documentary I've ever seen that takes you behind the scenes of the filmmaking process. So I will also uh, give a quick recommendation for a movie that's similar to Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Island of Dr. Moreau. And that's the late, great John Schnepp's The Death of Superman Lives, What Happened? Uh, which is also just a fascinating look at all the work that goes into some of these big blockbuster superhero movies that we all know and love, and then, you know, it doesn't get made. So, uh, Nicolas Cage could have been our Superman. No dice didn't happen. It's a fantastic movie. John Schnepp really talks to all the big players involved. I can't recommend that one enough. Uh, so give that a watch. So, in summation, definitely watch The Island of Dr. Moreau. Definitely watch the documentary. If you're only going to choose one, watch the documentary. That, that'll tell you everything you need to know. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I'm glad you joined me for Hops and Flops. Remember, this is all made possible 
because of revengeofthefans.com. So make sure to go there. You can find Hops and Flops on Twitter at, at Hops and B-O Flops. And you can find me at Writer TLK. Uh, so one last time, thank you guys again for listening. I think this has been a lot of fun. I love movies. Uh, it's a great passion of mine. I'm really looking forward to the future of the show and where we can take it. And I'm also looking forward to you guys getting involved and sending me your recommendations for movies that you may love that the rest of the world just reviles. Hey, we've all got them. We all have our guilty pleasures. That's the beauty of cinema. Uh, film criticism is subjective. So never feel ashamed about bad movies that you may love. I've got a ton. Uh, and we're going to cover a lot of them right here on this show. Uh, so a little bit of bonus uh, information for you. So as we described throughout this podcast... Marlon Brando was sort of a nightmare, right? But Marlon Brando had been a nightmare for a long time in uh, movies he was cast in. He often refused to learn his lines. They'd have to put cue cards around the set. And this extends as far back as The Godfather, where Robert Duvall, who plays Tom Hagen in the movie, he's the consigliere, was literally having cue cards taped to his chest in scenes so Marlon Brando could know all of his lines he did it in superman the movie they even put cue cards on the baby on baby kal-el before the ship took off uh, by 1996 technology had come a little ways so he had actually an earpiece and his assistant would feed him lines and <laughs> there'd be moments where he just he'd say out loud like stop acting the lines yelling at his assistant who was trying to be too dramatic in her delivery of the lines. Or another time he picked up a police radio wave and he's like, there's been a robbery in Melbourne. So stuff like that. Um, Just a lot of great stories, which I think will be part of the fun of the show is, is going through and learning some of this stuff that you may have never known before. So Just a little bonus as we close things out. Uh, We'll see you next time on Hops and Box Office Flops.